Well, let's get to this last thing because uh, God, and uh, our last week, we ended with, with God working through uh, these turning points in the patriarchs' lives. And then we have this, this thing where we have identity, where God creates identity in his people. He starts off with a swindler, Jacob, named Swindler, and changes his name into wrestles with God. Yeah, lives. I think that's amazing. And God changes his identity to the point with saying this is a man and now a nation that is known and marked by God. And God can change us. Well, we have this. Uh, Jacob, Israel, was given a promise. A promise that was given to his dad. And a promise that was given to his grandfather. That through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. You're going to have, a, you're going to have so many descendants. You're going to have kings. Nations will come from you. Right? And yet, it was a small family. Relatively. And we say, God, where is your promise? Are you able to keep this? And, and this is where we'll find us that uh, how God is at work in this third generation of the called. In Genesis 29, 31 through uh, uh, chapter 30, he says this. And this is a kind of a long story, but it explains how does God take this one guy, right, this small family, and build them into a nation, okay? It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. Now, remember, Jacob married Leah, the older daughter. He got swindled. Swindler got swindled. Remember that? And he marries the wrong girl because the father-in-law was tricky like that. And Leah wasn't as pretty as her younger sister, and... And so this is where it was at. Jacob marries Leah. It says, When the Lord saw Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to her son, and she named him Reuben, uh, Reuben which means seeing, by the way. And for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Look where our focus is. You see this? Like This was a messed up family. Surely my husband will love me because I can give him a son. And he didn't love her so much more. So it says, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he will give me this one too. So she named him Simon, hearing. All right, again, God's seen me, he's heard me. And yet, she's still looking to her husband, she's still feeling not loved. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at least my husband will become attached to me. And she's given up on love, but at least he'll be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And so she named him Levi, which means joined or attached. You hear her heart just breaking? And she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And then she stopped having children. You know what Judah means? Praise. Do you see this transition in this woman, in this broken family, where she's got this husband who just doesn't love her, and yet God sees her, and he's, as she recognizes nothing that she could ever do to really gain his love. Favoritism's like that, isn't it? And yet she finally gets to this point and says, you know what? God loves me. I'm going to give him praise. That's an amazing thing. So she has that one. Now, that's not all the kids that they have, though. <laughs> Things get a little more... Uh, messy. They would be a really good reality TV show. It says, Jacob became angry with her and said, 
oh, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having... Oh, I'll go back one more verse. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing children for Jacob, uh, she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And then Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? That's a good way to comfort her. <laughs> then he said... Then she said, here is Bilhah, my servant, sleep with her so that she can bear children for me so that I too can build a family through her. Now, what have we seen this before? Did it turn out well? No, Abraham, he had had, uh, his wife's servant and that didn't turn out well even today. And now we see that his grandson has that same thing. But it says, so Bilhah gave uh, so she gave him her silver Bilhah, his wife, and Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. And because of this, she named him Dan. And Dan means here comes the tribe. I, I like that. That's a little... She names the other woman's son. I thought that's interesting. And then like, here comes... Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son, and Rachel said, I have a great struggle with my sister, and I have one. Right? How messed up is this family? Right? You have a kid, and it's like, ha I just scored. You didn't. So she named him Nephtali, and when Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave, Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Now it's a competition, straight up. Leah's servant Zilpah bore him a son, and, Le- and Leah said, What good fortune! So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then she said, How happy I am! The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. And during the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, and he brought them to his mother, Leah. And Rachel said, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Was it enough that you took away my husband? Now you want to take my mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. You can sleep with, uh, he, he can sleep with you tonight in return from some of your son's mandrakes. Now they're prostituting their husband out for fruit. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. How messed up. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Isn't that amazing? As crazy as that situation was, as as sick as that was, God still hears and he's still active in building a nation, even through that. And Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. What? (laughs) So she named him Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and he listened to her and enabled her to conceive. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. So she named him Joseph. And said, may the Lord add to me another son. I think that's interesting. I mean, she's barren. One, you had the war of the babies going on. 
right? Because at, cause this, this is pretty messed up. You have this war going on between them. You have all these kids that are being born. And in doing so, obviously there's a lot of pressure on these women. And, and yet when fi- God finally gives Rachel this son, what does she say? That's great, but not enough. Well, much later on, we're, we're going to skip down to chapter 35. It says, Then they moved from Bethel, which is where it had been. And when they were uh, still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And she was having great difficulty in childbirth. And the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. So God even heard her and gave her another son. And she, um, and she breathed her last. For she was dying, and she named her son Benoni, which means child, son of my suffering. How would you like to be named that? But his father named him Benjamin, son of my right hand. You have in this story of how God begins this, this nation, and it doesn't look like the perfect Christian picture, right? These are our patriarchs. This is our heritage of faith. And I love how the Bible doesn't sugarcoat this. They don't, the God's word is true. It doesn't just lift up our patriarchs and say, these people were perfect, be perfect like them. Because it's not their perfection that, that we're supposed to, to replicate. It's something much different that Hebrews shows us, isn't it? It is the faith. But look at these guys. This is a crazy story. And in this, we're going to recognize there's, there's some really crazy things that happened, but it talks to us about who God is. Because God knew what this family was going to be like. I mean, he's, he's brilliant. But the first thing we recognize is that God is not bound by our circumstances. Right? God's going to keep his promise regardless. We can trust him because he's him. He is God. And we look at the circumstances that we have our, our family of faith being built from. You have this great nation that's going to come from a exceptionally dysfunctional home. You have four women having children with this guy. Two of whom are are full wives. The other two are basically, they didn't have a choice in this, they're slave wives. Only one of those women was truly loved and every one of the other women knew it. How difficult would that be? The children in that home, they, they were used as power plays, a scorecard, who's winning? And how would it be like to be a child like that? And do you think that there were maybe a little bit of, of, uh, of, of sibling rivalry? Uh, my mom's winning this baby war because of me and not you? It's just sad. You have grandparents and parents just trusting one another. Think about this. When, when Jacob and his large family move from Haran, right, where they were at working as sheep farmers and, and ranchers, and they move from that area, the father-in-law comes out and stops them and says, I can kill you. Everything you have is mine. And Jacob says, no, it's not. I worked for it. And they say, well... I'm not going to for the sake of my grandkids, but you didn't even let me say goodbye to them, right? You just, you just took off. What's the deal? And Jake was like, well, we didn't owe you anything. Now, this is not your typical grandparent-parent relation. This is not the ideal Hallmark greeting card kind of family. 
And then beyond that, he says, and you've taken my household gods. This is Israel. You've taken his household gods? And he says, and this is their solution to that, as family. He says to his father-in-law, we didn't take your household gods, but I tell you what, if you can search everything and if you find somebody took your household gods, you can kill them. Family! And guess what? Rachel did steal them, but she hid it. She deceived her, her dad. She took on the swindler nature of her husband. They didn't trust each other. They stole from one another. And you think that they would go back? No. There was a later story. Remember that Dinah was born. Dinah grew up a little bit in a society that was dangerous to be a woman. And Dinah was raped. And know what these boys did? They went to that place, that city that raped her, and they said, we're going to kill you. And the people said, no, no, please don't kill us. They said, all right, well, then if you become one of our tribe, then we won't kill you. And so they said, okay, that sounds good. And if you marry Dinah, then, then we won't kill you. Do so it's honor. But in order to do that, you have to become one of our tribe. They said, what do we have to do? They said, well, you have to be circumcised. And so all these men in the entire city were circumcised. So that way this guy could marry this girl so the city wouldn't be killed. And what happens? Well, they were hurting because it's not a pleasant surgery, I can't imagine. And then, while they were all hurting, what do these, these 12 sons or these sons do? They go in and they kill them anyway. It's wholesale slaughter. A, a little bit on the, the downside for the whole ethical thing, right? There was incest in this family. You read through Genesis, you see there are two times where we have incest directly in this family. First time is Reuben, the oldest son, and Bilhah, one of his stepmoms. I, I don't know how that works. Sister mom? I don't know. Weird. Uh, in Genesis 35, 26, while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went out and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And then Israel, Israel heard about that. How messed up is this? He sleeps with like his stepmom. And it comes back to bite him later on. But there was another time uh, that there was. There was a guy, Judah. Remember Judah? One of the sons? Well, he had some boys. And those boys married a gal uh, named Tamar. And the oldest son uh, died. And so Tamar didn't have a kid. So they said, well, you have to marry the younger son. Now has to be your husband until you have a child. And then then that child will be yours because that was their social security. If you had children, they'd take care of you. And uh, so the next son came in, but he didn't have a baby with her. He basically kept it so he wasn't going to have a baby with her so he can keep sleeping with her. And God saw that was wicked and killed him. And so the third son comes in, same thing, right? And then here's Tamar. She can't marry. She has no kids. What is she going to do? Well, Reuben's not taking care of her. He keeps putting her on the back burner, Right? So finally, she dresses up as a prostitute. He goes into this town, thinks she's a prostitute, sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant with his daughter-in-law. And she's smart. She says, uh, he, for payment, you come back and pay me, but I want your staff and I want your ring. So that way, you know, I have these things, so you come back and pay me. And then he comes back later and she's not there. And the people said, there's no prostitute in this town. He's like, well, that's strange. Well, that's fine. She can keep my staff in my ring. I don't care. Right? Later on, finds out that she's pregnant. And he's like, kill her. 
You've been sleeping around. This is his daughter-in-law married to three of his sons that he's not taking care of. He says, kill her. And she says, okay, that's fine. You're right. I was sleeping around, but the man who did that owned these. <gasps> Da-da-da. I mean, and he's like, oh, you're right. I was not righteous. And you know what? She becomes in the lineage of, of our Lord. How crazy is that? I mean, there was incest. There was favoritism like crazy in this family. From which wife he liked best to which son he liked best. Led to all kinds of problems, but God was at work. Now, there was a son, Joseph. Remember, Joseph was his favorite wife's son. And Joseph got all the special treatment. He got a fancy coat with lots of colors on it. And not only that, when all the other boys had to go out and do ranching, what did Joseph get to do? He got to go out and visit them and tell them what to do. They really loved Joseph. Right? Well, here's a story. Joseph goes out to meet them. They're like, let's kill this guy. I hate him. And remember, these guys have a history of killing entire villages. And they are going to kill him. And then they decide, one of them speaks up, says, no, 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 let's not kill him. That's, he's our brother. All of a sudden, now they have, so let's put him into a hole to die. That's a great idea, much better. And so they strip him naked and they throw him in the hole. And then these traders come by that are, that are slave traders and they say, well, let's not totally kill him. Maybe God will be mad if he'd be much better. God will be much happier if we just sell him into slavery and then we lie to our dad about how he died. And so they sell him into slavery and they take his cloak and they dip it in the blood of an animal, that one of their dad's property that they slaughter. And then they say, oh, look, he died. And they present it to his dad. And his dad thinks his favorite son's dead. And Joseph, however, is off in Egypt as a slave. Ends up getting bought by this prison guard, this, ma- this important guy. Works his way up. Becomes head of his household as far as a butler. Still a slave. And then all of a sudden, his, that guy's wife falls in love with Joseph. And then frames him for raping her, which he didn't do. And he gets thrown into prison. And while he's at prison, he's still righteous. And eventually the prison guards say, you're, you're such a cool guy. We're going to let you be in charge of these prisoners. He is a prisoner himself. But they trust him that much. And God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. And two of these, these prisoners have these dreams and he interprets them correctly. One of the guys, the, the baker, gets killed by the, like, just like Joseph said. The other one, the cupbearer, which would be a cool job, he gets set free just like Joseph said. And then he's still stuck in prison and eventually the, the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, has a dream about crazy things, about these seven cows who eat skinny cows and they're still skinny. He's like, what? And he has another dream about seven stalks of healthy wheat getting eaten up by seven stalks of weak wheat and they're still weak and frail. And he's, what does this mean? And then the cupbearer says, oh, I remember this guy named Joseph, brings him out. Joseph interprets the dream, says it's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. If I were you, I'd put somebody in charge to store up all that extra plenty so you don't die in the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh said, I found the guy, it's you. And all of a sudden he becomes vice Pharaoh, second most powerful guy in the world. You don't see God's hand in this. is amazing. But look how dysfunctional it was to lead him to that. It was crazy favoritism. But I think in that story, we see something powerful. We see that God is not bound by our circumstances. You have Israel, who's got the most messed up family that we can think of, and God says, this is the nation I'm going to save the world through. 
You have women who are having battles about who's going to have the most kids. And God says, this is the nation I'm going to bless the world through. You have favoritism, crazy favoritism. That is horrible and wounding them as a family. And God says, I'm going to use that favoritism to save you. In fact, in fact, we read, this is uh, such a, a great, uh, actually, I will get to the next thing. We read it there. Joseph says to his brothers, uh, what you meant for evil, God meant for good so that I can save you and many people. It's an amazing thing. See, God, isn't, God does not stop our circumstances because God is omnipotent. Remember back at the very beginning when we talked about the very first chapters of Genesis. What was one of the things we realized that God is creator. He is omnipotent. He has all the power. That's one of the reasons that our faith is well placed. See, God doesn't worry about our circumstances because he has the power over them. He can do what he's going to do. And we look at our own lives and God's promises for us in our lives. And sometimes we get down and we're like, ah, God, are you at work Can you really save me from this? How can you possibly keep your promises in the midst of this? And we remember that our God is omnipotent. Isn't that powerful? We also recognize something about God through this amazing story. is that God is not bound by our sin. How many of us think that if I was just more righteous, God would be more powerful in this world? Right? God would be able to do more if I was just a better person. We need to realize that that's not how that works. That God is not righteous because we are righteous. God is not powerful because we're good. God is powerful because he's God. You see, these 12 tribes, they were saved in spite of themselves. Look at that story of Joseph. What... (laughs) <laughs> That's what, what uh, Joseph says. What you intended to harm me, God intended for good. He brought me to this position so I could save many lives. Think about that. Does it mean that we're supposed to just sin and do all kinds of bad things? No, of course it's not. That'd be stupid. Why would we work against God? But we should never think that God is going to be slow in keeping his promises because we just have to manipulate people to be good enough to allow God to do what he's going to do. No, no. God is in charge. Isn't that great? See, our hope isn't based upon the goodness of other people. Our hope of God keeping his promise is not based upon somehow everybody just lining up and doing what God's will is. God's will is happening. He will bring about his purposes. This is why we can have faith in him and him alone. See, God's not bound by our sin because God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows how to work everything together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that hopeful? And we look at the world today and it looks broken. Now there's ISIS coming across and destroying things. We look down into Africa and there are bad groups that are kidnapping cities full of women. We look into our own cities and even to our own town and we see brokenness. We see our culture turning against Christ time and time again. And sometimes we think, oh, God, how on earth can we bring about your purposes in this world when everybody else is fighting against you? Guess what? God is the master chess player. What people mean to, to use against God, he brings about for his purposes. He always has. And so our hope isn't in this world, but it's in God because he is omniscient. 
And if you remember back at the creation, how was it that God could create everything out of nothing? The way that he did with such, with such technical uh, skill. I mean, just precision to bring life. Our God knows everything. And he proves that even how he works in history, our faith is well placed in a God like that. We see also from the story that, uh, that our God, he is, he's not bound by our surroundings. There's a promised land that God said, I'm going to give this to you, to, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is your promised land. I will bring you back to this place. You're going to bless the world through it. And remember, the people of that day thought that gods were kind of regional gods. That they, they owned an area or they owned something. Like there might be a god of war and a god of, of good harvest and things like this. Or they would say, this is the god of our city. Or, this is the god of this area. And so if you go to that area, then you'd worship that god. And we'd think, okay, well, this is my surroundings. This is where I am. This is where God can bless me. I love how God just takes that away. God takes Israel to Egypt to save them. Now, remember in Egypt, they had all kinds of gods, didn't they? They had Ra, and they had all these other ones. I like Ra. It's my favorite because it's like Ra, Ra, Ra. He had these powerful gods. And God's like, I'm not intimidated by them, not even in the slightest. And you, don't, you can be there, and that's okay, and you can be my people. And I will bless you, and I will... And in fact, this is what he says. So, uh, you know, after, after Israel realizes that Joseph is alive, right, that whole big scandal just kind of uncovers, and he realizes that his boys had lied to him all those years and had done this thing, and, they're, and they are faced with that, but they need... The, the food from Egypt so that way they won't die, right? And, and so these boys come up and say, no, he's really alive and, and all that. And, and Israel is, finally recognizes this. But he wants to stay in the land because this is where God is, right? I mean, as much as he loves his boy, he wants to stay in the land. And God says to him, so Israel set out with all that he has. Why? He's going to go to Israel or Egypt. And then he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to him. And why would he do that? Because he knows he's leaving the promised land. Am I leaving God to be saved by something else? He offered sacrifices to his, the God of his, his ancestors. And then God spoke to him in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. He said, I am God. The God of your father, he said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down into Egypt with you, and surely I will bring you back again. And Joseph's own hands will close your eyes. Now, that's powerful. I mean, God is going into other God's turfs, right? He said, I'm going to bless you there, and I can actually fulfill my covenant in a way that you wouldn't expect, but I can do it anywhere I want to. And this is, this is amazing. So Jacob leaves. Remember, it was a small family. When he was growing up, it was mom and dad and then him and Harry, right? That was it. Four. Not a great nation. You could still count that on one hand. Now, granted, through all of his craziness and dysfunction in his families, he's got a pretty large family now. And it says this, those who went down to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. So he went from 4 to 66. That's not bad. Now, granted, he did it in kind of a sick way, but it's not bad. But you can still count that. 
And then it says, with the two sons that he had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family went down to Egypt, were 70 in all. So they go down with 70 people, which is quite a few, but it's not a nation. Right? It's a, it's a small, it's, it's a family. It's a, you know, you have your family reunion. It's about the same size. And God brings them down into Egypt like that. And we say, God, where is your promise? How is, where's your promise being kept in this, right? You said, I'm going to have a land. You said, I'm going to have so many kids that I can't count. And right now I'm being taken out of my land. And I have a lot of kids, but I can still count them. In Exodus, I'm sorry, this is the next book, but this is important. It says, now Joseph and his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly and increased in number, became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And God sets up the move back, the exodus back to the promised land. God built a nation. And God built a nation out of a people that really didn't deserve it. Right? And in this we recognize that there's something also powerful about God that we know. God is on the present. God is everywhere. And it's not just in, in space that God is all places. It's not like you could go from here, you can go to China. Guess what? God's there. How cool is that? You don't get on an airplane and like halfway through you got to God's call zone or whatever. You can't pray. Because people in the old world thought, ancient world, that's, that's how God worked. Like he's got his zone. But God is everywhere. Here's an amazing thing. If we send somebody to Mars and they pray, God is there. You go to the deepest reaches of space, God is there. But also God is omnipresent. It means this. God is not just in all places. He's in all times. It is the same God of Abraham as the God that is here with us this morning. He works the same. And we find that Jesus was the one that was creating things. It is that same Jesus that is with us today. And that Holy Spirit, which has worked throughout history, and, and brought about God's plan, that omniscience, that omnipresence, that, that, that God is so powerful, he's omnipotent, that Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit that is with us today. It is God, our trying, powerful, wonderful God. It's not just in all times and all places, but also all circumstances. God is with us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you know in the Greek, that never forsake you is like a triple no, no, no. I will never, not ever, never, never leave you. He is here. You see, our God can be trusted and we can put our faith in him because he's, we're not out of his zone. There wasn't an expiration on his power or his presence or his wisdom. He is here now and he is at work now and he has promises for us today. And so we see that God can be trusted. God keeps his promises. Now, Abraham waited for a little while and he didn't see it, but he held on to faith. And Isaac didn't see it, but he knew that God was going to keep his promises, so he held on to faith. And Israel didn't quite see it, but he knew it was going to happen, so he held on to faith. And in spite of their sin, in spite of their circumstances, in spite of everything else which says, would tell them God is not at work, guess what? God made a nation. And that nation grew and in that nation, even though that nation was dysfunctional a lot of times and wandered from God and betrayed God time and time again, God was faithful to that nation and brought about the Messiah. And that Messiah has died for the sins of all people and rose again. God keeps his promises. And God says, church, I am with you. I will never, no, never, not ever leave you or forsake you. 
He has given us a commission. He has given us something to do. He said, listen, you've got to tell everyone this good news. You have to help each other grow in faith, teach each other to obey everything I've commanded. But he's also promised he's coming back. In spite of all the things in our lives, we would say, listen, is God here in the United States? Is God here in my life? How about all the sin that I do? Could God ever really use me? Yeah. The answer is an emphatic yes. God is here. God is active. God's promises, you can't stop them. But we have the privilege and the joy of holding on to them in faith. Now, as I ask the worship team to come up and uh, we bring this, this service portion of the service to a close. I want you to take out your green connection cards. Why? Because the last thing we ever want to do is come across the scripture and then leave unchanged. What do we do with this? Well, I think the first thing that maybe you want to do on the back side, they've turned over, it says, uh, this week I can commit to, maybe this week you want to commit to memorizing Hebrews 1.11. Because you know what? Faith is important. Faith is powerful. But faith is not easy. We need to hold on to this. But you remember that, that, when we, that when we hold on to what we can't prove or what we cannot see, it's, it's, we're clinging to God. And He is faithful. And He will keep His promises. So don't lose faith. Maybe this. Maybe you want to read Genesis 27 and 35. Why? If you want a picture of the faithfulness and the power and the ever-presence of God, here it is. God keeps His promises. He built a nation out of a people that were impractical, improbable, impossible, really. I mean, you think about Abraham didn't have a kid till he was like 100 years old. God keeps his promises. Maybe this is what you want to read is the end of the story to recognize that there's also going to be an end to our story and that story is going to be God's faithful. He keeps his promises. Maybe that's what you need to read this week. Genesis 27 and 35. How about this? How about you pray? How about you release your excuses? Oh, we all have lots of excuses why we're not going to really engage in God, how we're going to hold back a little bit. I'll invest a little bit of myself into God, but just in case he doesn't come through, I'm going to hold back just a little bit. You know, our forefathers, as messed up as they were, were incredible because they were people of faith. And that's what really matters. They were all in. God doesn't ask you to be perfect, but he wants us to be faithful. For all the excuses that we might have to hold us back from what God is calling us to do, maybe you say today, you know what, God? You really are. You are all-powerful. And you really do know what's best. You, you, you have this whole thing uh, buttoned up, and I can trust you. And you are really are everywhere, in every place of my life, and in my entire history, you are there. And I'm going to trust you. I'm going to release my excuses, and I'm going to engage in your plan. And I'm going to hold to you and cling to you. Maybe that's what you need to do. And you can think of those things in your life that you're putting ahead of God or you're putting as your backup plan in case he doesn't come through. Get rid of those because you're just wasting whatever that energy is. Our God can be trusted. Or how about this? Maybe you want to join a life group. Why? Well, God made us as a family, right? He calls us a community. He calls us a body that's all joined together. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Never once ever in the Bible do you find a Christian out there on their own God makes us to work together. He says this is how he wants his body to work. Well, life groups are a great opportunity for us to connect with other believers. We call them life groups, not study groups for a reason. We're going to study the Bible, but we're going to learn how to apply this and do life together. 
right? So we can, we can engage in God's work in our lives in a fulfilling way. Maybe that's what you need to do. If you want to do that, give us a check mark on that and we'll contact you. Maybe there's something else. Maybe a, something I didn't even think of, but a commitment you know the Holy Spirit's telling you, this is what I need to do. Mark that down. Or maybe there's some other commitment that you need to make. Let us know. But also, if you have a prayer request, and I love praying for you. Our staff loves praying for you. If you've got something that is on your heart, you say, God, I, I want to lift this to you, let us join you in that. Let us know. We will be praying for you this week. Here in just, in just a couple seconds, we're going to be taking our offering and our tithes. And as they pass the baskets around, I ask that you also put your connection card in there and make this also part of your offering this week to God, your commitments and yourself. Can we all do that? All right, let's do. Let's pray for all these things. Heavenly Father, you are powerful beyond our comprehension. That you could make the entire universe from nothing. And Father, you can make a nation out of a promise. Lord, and you can make saints out of sinners like us. And you can restore this world through a broken church. And you can do it in love and in power because you are worthy. And God, it is a privilege to be called by your name. It is a joy to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, with you and with this body. God, it is it's amazing to know that, that it is your wisdom that we can trust. It is your presence that we can rely on. It is your power that we could count on, that you keep your promises. So let us hold tight to those promises. Let us be a church of great faith. Father, as we reach this community in the love and the spirit of Christ. Lord, I pray that you take these offerings that we're going to bring to you, these tithes, Father, and it's not our obedience that you bless, Father. It is, it is your work. So bless it. And Father God, I pray this too, that you wouldn't just bless the offerings and the tithes, but also these commitments that we're making to grow closer to you and in you. Father, whatever the commitments that are made, help us to keep them. And Father, I pray that you would change us through them as you keep your promise in us and through us. Lord, this is our prayer we ask in Christ's name. Amen.